Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk about the greatest investor of all time, Warren Buffett. But unlike what most people talk about when they speak of Buffett, we discuss some of the unique things Buffett does with Berkshire Hathaway and his investment strategy that most investors couldn't or shouldn't necessarily be doing with their portfolios. From forms of market timing, to a super concentrated portfolio, to Buffett's ability to adapt and change, and some creative tax moves. These are examples of what makes Buffett so unique, but also shouldn't be looked at as strategies for most investors. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion. All right, today we're going to talk about an article that I wrote earlier this week. And the title of the article, which was probably a little bit aggressive, but I thought it was a good title, was Four Things Buffett Does That Most Investors uh, Couldn't or Shouldn't Do With Their Portfolios. And um, this is something, Jack, you and I sort of talk about a lot, which is this idea that you know, a lot of investors look at these great investors, people like Buffett or maybe Ray Dalio or maybe Dave Swenson from, uh, you know, Yale's endowment. And they they sort of hang on their every word and they think that, you know, their investing process or decisions are what they should be using um, or taking ideas to manage their investment portfolios. And, and as you and I have spoken about, that's a lot of times the furthest thing from what investors actually should be doing. Yeah, that's right. You know, billionaires, it's billionaires are just in a very different situation than us. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly who's, who watches our podcast, but the odds are everybody who's watching this podcast right now are below Buffett on the billionaires list. Um, and I don't know. Do you know where he ranks right now? Well, he might be like one of the most, there's only like maybe one or two guys ahead of him. So yeah. I, yeah. So uh, I don't think Bill Gates is right, in the audience right, right now. So exactly. the, the odds are that everybody who's watching this is below him. And, you know, billionaires live in a different world. You know, they obviously have more money than the rest of us, but they also operate on different timeframes. They, they view their trades like in more of a portfolio context. So there's, you can't, you, know, you often see these things on CNBC. I mean, I, Druck and Miller did something at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis. You, you see these things where these billionaires are making these moves and, and you want to copy them. But the reality is they're considering their personal situation or the situation of the people that are investing with them. And those are very, very different than what you and I are looking at, you know, and to, to give some examples, like for instance, you'll, you'll see a lot of times. So if Buffett was to go out and buy put options or something tomorrow, th that would be a big headline. Buffett buys put options, but all Buffett might be doing is hedging a particular position he has. It would, you know, the media might portray it as Buffett thinks the market's going down. So he's buying put options when the reality is all he's really doing probably is, is hedging something that he's doing in the other part of his portfolio. And you see that with a lot of these billionaires is they, they have a specific context they're working under that is leading to the decisions they're making. And so there's not a lot the rest of us can learn from those types of decisions. Right. Now, I mean, the one thing with Buffett, obviously, is he has this phenomenal long-term track record. So a lot of times when he's talking about the market or what he's buying for Berkshire Hathaway, you know, investors <clears throat> sort of step up and pay attention to that. <clears throat> and a, a lot of times there's like worldly, thoughtful, obviously, long-term great wisdom in what Buffett is talking about and sharing. Um, but at the same time, what Buffett would also say to the vast majority of investors is that, um, you know, don't, 
you know, what, what you really should be doing is just buying the S&P 500, getting long-term, you know, equity exposure and not worrying about trying to pick stocks or trying to, you know, find the, uh, the best value stock or the best, you know, name out there basically. Yeah, this is a case where you're, you're better off doing what Buffett says rather than what he does. So, you know, what Buffett says is that most people should just buy index funds. You know, what Buffett does are some of the things we'll talk about with your article. You know, he, he runs a concentrated portfolio. He, he does a lot of things in, in his actual money management practice that are your average person should not be doing. But what he says people should do is to just buy passive index funds. And, you know, that's probably what most people should be taking from Buffett rather than trying to pick apart you know, his 13F when it comes out every every month and try to fit or every quarter and figure out what it is he's actually doing. And I believe most of the money that Buffett is, you know, after uh, he dies, the money that is left over, I believe he's basically saying that money should be allocated. That's not in Berkshire Hathaway should should be allocated to the S&P 500. So that is just a little sort of thing there that he's, you know, going to be actually doing that with a lot of his own wealth once um, he passes away. But anyways, to get into the points in my article. So what I what I did here is I just said, you know, let's look at some of the things that Buffett does with Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio or has done over the years and why, you know, most investors shouldn't be trying to copy those moves. And so the first point that I made was that Buffett is effectively um, uh, there there is a market timing aspect to how he manages sort of the cash coming in that Berkshire Hathaway has. So let's just kind of take a step back. So Berkshire Hathaway has a lot of operating businesses and a lot of the publicly traded stocks that Buffett owns actually kick off dividends. So between the operating businesses and the publicly traded stocks, there's this constant sort of earning stream coming in and Buffett has the ability. Plus, I think he has the insurance float from Geico. Um, that may not be on the that may not be considered cash on Berkshire's balance sheet, but that is sort of cash that he can deploy. Um, but effectively, what's happened is in 2008, Buffett had roughly end of 08, I think he had roughly, let's say, 25 to 30 billion in cash. Um, fast forward to June of this year or even September, um, his latest filing. Now, he's been putting more mo money to work, but he had roughly 145 billion in cash. So all that time over the last you know 12 years or so, Berkshire Hathaway has been generating these profits and Buffett hasn't been aggressively putting that money to work. And so in some way, it's, you know, it is sort of a market timing decision. He wasn't, you know, going in and buying the S&P. This is something I wrote in the article. If, if he would have just, you know, put that money in the S&P 500, um, you know, you wonder what that cash balance would be worth if he would have had, you know, just broad based market exposure. Instead, he's, you know, been mostly patient. Um, they haven't found sort of, there's been acquisitions and deals but the cash is growing, you know, very quickly relative to the amount of opportunities that he can find. Yeah, this whole, this whole idea of, first of all, it, it's important to separate a cash reserve from cash in your stock portfolio. Everybody should obviously have a cash reserve. But in terms of having cash in your stock portfolio, you know, waiting for that opportunity when you can deploy the cash, that's something Buffett can do. That's something the rest of us should not do because over time, the market goes up more than it goes down. And so what are the chances you're going to take that money you're, you've got on the sidelines and you're going to deploy it in such a way that's better than just holding through as the market goes up over time? The, the odds are very low. So that market timing component of, you know, a lot of people like to do that. They like to say, all right, I'm going to keep a certain percentage of my portfolio in cash. And, you know, when I see the opportunity with the right company or when I see the market pullback, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to invest it. That almost never works for individual investors. But, you know, Buffett's a different animal, but 
you have to remember with something that's going up more than it's going down, the odds are against you in terms of, are you going to generate a better return by putting some money in cash and then waiting to deploy it when you see some sort of opportunity? And by the way, a lot of times when that opportunity presents itself, it's during the most scary time. So it's not like it's easy a lot of times to deploy money for individual investors when they see stocks down 10, 15, 20%. I mean, Buffett, you know, oftentimes says, you know, whether it's stocks or socks, he likes thing to buy things when they go on sale. Um, and a lot of individual investors sort of try to think that way, but it's oftentimes hard to pull the trigger when, you know, stocks are in a decline and you have this money on the sidelines because you kind of say to yourself, well, if I get in now, are stocks going to continue to go down? And, you, you know, sort of the fear takes over um, versus the rationality, but Buffett's able to obviously overcome that. Yeah. And, you, and you've kind of seen that in this coronavirus rebound is, you know, if you were sitting on, you know, if you think the, the bounce back was too great and you're, and you're sitting on cash waiting to deploy it, waiting for a pullback here, well, we keep not getting the pullback. Um, you know, the market just keeps going up despite what, what seems like evidence on the other side that maybe it shouldn't be. And, you know, by the time you, know, by the time you actually can deploy the money, you're likely going to be deploying it at much higher levels than you could have deployed it before. So it's just the timing of it is so incredibly hard that for most people, you know, keeping a portion of your equity portfolio in cash and just waiting to deploy it, deploy it is usually a bad idea. Yeah. My second point was just looking at how concentrated Buffett's portfolio, Berkshire Hathaway's public public stock holding portfolio actually is. And so as many investors uh, might know, Apple has become Buffett's largest um, publicly traded stock position. So I think he started, his, his total cost basis in Apple might be something around 35 billion. Last time I looked, which was just a few days ago, I believe that was that position was around 115 billion. So he's up whatever, is it three times on his money, something like that. And the total stock portfolio, the total value of all the stocks that Buffett owns is roughly 250 billion. So Apple at, uh, let's say 115, 120 billion, it represents about a 46% position of the publicly traded stocks that Buffett owns. And then, so there's one very large holding and Apple's up a lot this year. It's up like 70% or something. So a lot of that you know, concentration has come because Apple's perform so well, but even when you take um, the next, let's say the next, the five largest positions, you know, they account for roughly 80% of the total value of Buffett's stock portfolio. So basically 80% of the stock portfolio is in five stocks. And by the way, if you go back to Buffett's shareholder letters, going back to the, to, to the eighties and nineties, you'll see a similar theme, which is he is a very concentrated investor. If I remember going back to like a shareholder letter in the eighties. And I think there was like literally five or six companies that he owned. So, you know, he's oftentimes, we look at Buffett's portfolio now, and there's, you know, probably about 45 individual stocks that he holds, but it's really all concentrated in a handful of names. And in my article, I'll let you comment on this in a sec, Jack, but in my article, I did like a pretty cool like chart where I show, you know, just how large these companies are in the context of his overall holdings. It's like called a hierarchy chart. And we'll actually put that in the podcast so people can see that. Yeah, Buffett enjoys a privilege that almost no other man money manager on the planet enjoys, which is that he doesn't care what the S&P 500 does in any year or any five years or any 10 years or any 20 years. He's not judging himself against that. And so everybody else, what, if you're a money manager, you're being judged against the S&P 500. If you're an individual investor, you're judging yourself against the S&P 500. And that's why the rest of us 
can't concentrate like he concentrates because we are going to look at, you know, if, if we are managing money for clients and we trail the S&P 500 for 15 years, we're not going to have any more clients. Whereas as he doesn't have to worry about that. And, and if you're an individual investor and you're, you know, using a concentrated strategy and things go south on you and, and you have a very long period where it's not working, the odds are you're going to abandon the strategy. And so that level of concentration, you know, doesn't make sense for your average person, but it, it can make sense for him. I mean, he, he's doing a lot of different things and, you know, for him and his equity portfolio, I mean, the Apple concentration, I think he sold some, didn't he? This time he's actually bringing that. Yeah, very little. Yeah, pretty little, pretty small amount though. I assume over time, you're going to see him bring that down a little bit, but he can do things that the rest of us cannot do with respect to concentration. And, you know, we just have to understand there, there's nothing to take from that. You know, we're not going to learn any lesson in terms of, oh, I need to be more concentrated like Buffett because there's good reason why the rest of us are not concentrated like that. Yeah. The third point I um, brought up in the article was, and I, I kind of was like toggling, I guess, on a couple of things here, but I was really kind of trying to get at Buffett's level of adaptability over the years, which that's something we talked about with Kai Wu on our podcast. Um, Buffett's sort of migration from a, you know, deep value investor to what was effectively a high quality type of compounder looking for good businesses, you know, that were large, that had sort of a, a protective mode around their business that, um, sort of were growing that had the ability to grow. Buffett tries to buy those types of companies at attractive prices, but then even the shift to Apple where, you know, moving to a company that has most of its value in intangible assets, um, sort of Buffett has sort of migrated as an investor and changed a lot as an investor over the years. And there's, there's sort of reasons for that. But what I was also sort of pointing out, and this is from Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money, is that um, in 2013, Buffett and Munger were, I think it was at a, a Berkshire Hathaway meeting where they sort of said, like Buffett said, over the years, he thought he had owned probably between four and 500 individual stocks but only about 10 of those stocks were the real material winners that contributed significantly to Berkshire Hathaway's performance. If you take out those 10, then you know the, the performance is just pr pretty mediocre. And that was something that Charlie Munger sort of added on to that. So there's, there's sort of two things happening there. There's one, this adaptability, which I do think investors, you sort of need, and we've talked about this a lot, you sort of need to be able to adapt and look at the changing market conditions, but I also think there's a danger in that because, you know, you just have to be careful. You can't be like changing your strategy year by year because you'll probably just be performance chasing at that point. And then secondly, it's important to understand that, you know, in stock market returns, um, a very small percentage of stocks make up for a significant portion of the gains. And I think that happens with broader market indices and it probably happens with a lot of individual investor portfolios as well. So those were just two things. They aren't really things that you shouldn't be doing. It was just characteristics of Buffett's portfolio and his investment strategy that have helped lead to his outperformance over time. To some degree, they're both arguments in favor of indexing because the, the idea of adaptability as money managers, we have to be adaptable. We have to, like you said, I mean, we, if we're using the price to book ratio, we have to look and say intangible assets have risen a lot in the economy. The price to book ratio may not make sense, but that process of adapting is really, really hard. And, you know, it's, it's a process that most individual investors are going to get wrong because as, as you sort of said, if you take, if you're a value investor and you've been in value, hasn't been working for a while, 
well, what if today I decide to adapt my strategy to go buy the FANG stocks? Well, is, is that the right move or is that the wrong move? I mean, it, it's hard to say. I mean, they, they may continue doing well for a while, but the odds are against you in terms of making, you know, most people will probably use recent performance as the method by which they're doing that adapting. And, you know, if you're using recent performance to adapt your strategy, it's likely to lead you in the wrong direction, whereas someone like Buffett doesn't really care about recent performance. And so he's going to adapt his strategy using more of a long-term approach. Um, and, and the thing about the small number of stocks is also another argument for indexing because someone like Buffett probably has a better chance to find those diamond in the rough type stocks in their portfolio than you or I do. And so for him, he may be able to identify those stocks and benefit from them by having you know, overweight positions relative to the market. But for the rest of us, the S&P 500 is likely to contain those stocks. And so just by owning the entire index, you have a, a pretty good chance to make sure you at least own those stocks in some percentage. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The last, um, I guess, part of the article was sort of Buffett's creative tax moves. And there's sort of, before I give you the example, I should note that Berkshire Hathaway, I think in 2019, paid 1.5% of all corporate taxes. So it's not like Berkshire as a company isn't paying a lot of the federal corporate uh, income taxes that you know are generated by all companies in America. I mean, 1.5% is a huge amount when you think about all the companies that are out there. But the example that I gave, and again, this isn't really even, I don't even think individual investors have the mechanism to do this, but I gave the example, and Buffett has done this a few times. I just find it interesting of these like sort of these asset swap deals where I think it was in 2014, he owned, he had been a long-term shareholder in Graham Holdings, which owned the Washington Post. And he decided to basically get out of Graham. When, when the Washington Post was sold to Bezos, um, the founder of Amazon, you know, Buffett decided to basically get out of the get out of the position. But instead of selling it on the open market, he went to the company and he gave them back his shares of Graham Holdings. And in return, they gave Berkshire Hathaway, I think it was a TV station out of Miami. They gave him some cash and they also gave him Berkshire Hathaway stock that they had owned. So it was this tax free swap of assets. And, you know, Buffett, instead of, if, if Buffett would have had to sell those, that stock, he would have, you know, owed the long-term capital gains rate on it. And so ended up being a major sort of savings. And he's done it a few times, but it is interesting if you think about some of these large positions like Apple, if that could happen in the future and sort of lower Buffett's tax liability. Again, this isn't something that individual investors really have the ability to do, but it was just an interesting thing that I sort of, I remember when I, when I read that, that sort of jumped out at me as a way that Buffett was avoiding at least paying taxes on, you know, some of those stock positions. This falls in the camp of things that Buffett can do that your average person just can't. You know, if I get Graham Holdings on the phone and say, I'd like to give you back my stock in some sort of asset swap, I'm, you know, they're probably just going to hang up on me. Or, you know, what he did with Goldman in the financial crisis. I mean, you know, he was able to provide capital to Goldman on incredibly positive terms for him. And, you know, I don't know if you did, but I didn't get a call from Goldman asking, you know, me to give him 10 grand to help bail him out. And so there's just certain things he's able to do because he's Warren Buffett and, you know, you and I can't do it. So like you said, there's not much of a lesson from it other than to understand that, you know, Buffett has opportunities to do things that the rest of us don't have opportunities to do. And by the way, what, you know, we're sort of talking about all these things as things that investors shouldn't try to replicate or emulate um, or don't have the option to do. But the, all I did for this article is I actually, it was like an article hack. I just took the things that actually have, to some extent, contributed to Berkshire's long-term performance and I flipped it upside down. And so you could look at each of these, even though we're sort of 
discussing not the downsides of them, but how individual investors shouldn't be trying to do these things or can't do these things. These are actually qualities or moves that Buffett has made that actually allow him or give him the potential for um, you know outperformance, whether it's that performance he's generated in the past or the performance that Berkshire Hathaway may generate in the future. So, you know, I just think that's a, that's all I'm, I think we're trying to say is that it's, this isn't like an article trying to criticize Buffer or anything like that. It's just looking at these things and you can, you can draw sort of pros and cons, pluses or minuses on um, decisions and moves like this. Yeah. There's probably no investor your average, you know, that your average person can learn more from than Buffett. So like you said, this is not in any way to knock Buffett. I mean, Buffett, first of all, always, has, has always said to people, most people should be investing passively in indexes. And so, you know, there's just because there's a few things Buffett does that you shouldn't be doing doesn't mean, you know, what Buffett says to individual investors is always, you know, something that makes them better investors. And where people get really in trouble is not trying to follow people like Buffett, but they get in trouble when they try to follow people like hedge fund managers. And when, when you try to follow hedge fund managers who you're, you're hearing about some position in the news and they're already out of that position and doing the opposite of that, that's where people really get into trouble. So if you're going to follow anyone, you know, Buffett's a great guy to follow. It's just that you have to take each individual thing he does and say, you know, does this really apply to me personally? Does this apply to my situation? All right. So we hope, uh, you guys enjoyed this discussion. Um, we'll put a link to my article in the show notes. And um, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.